Okay, we have been going through the book of Judges, and we finished the book of Judges last week, and we're going to take the next logical step beyond that for a couple weeks uh, as we uh, go over to the book of 1 Samuel. There's a little book in between called Ruth, which is a four-week study that we'll do sometime. I know we've done it several times in the past, but sometime we'll return to that. But now we're going to be in 1 Samuel. Uh, and the general opinion and uh, by most people is that the book of Judges was written by Samuel. He's the one that put it together. We don't have anything that says that, but when we look at that time frame and who was around, he's about the only one that makes sense. And uh, Samuel, we believe, wrote the book of Judges. And, of course, Samuel would, re- would begin to write 1 Samuel. Right? He would write the book that carries his name into 2 Samuel. And on beyond that, somebody else probably finished it. But uh, uh, 1 Samuel and Judges, we say, were probably written by Samuel. And I particularly believe that after last week's study. You remember what happened we looked at last week, that uh, there was a violent murder uh, in the tribe of Benjamin of a Levite's wife. And he cut her up in pieces and sent her body around. That was quite a male drop-off that day uh, when you got an arm in the mail saying, what are we going to do about this? And for the first time in the book of Judges, people really get together and say, you know what, we're not going to put up with this. Well, they had a little trouble, and we saw them fail twice. Uh, And then the third time, they were in Shiloh, and they finally got it right. And I think Samuel put that on the end. I do not think it chronologically fits on the end, but I think he put it on the end of Judges because he wanted to show that Shiloh was still there. What's in Shiloh? Well, in Shiloh is the temple of God. Or actually at that time it was a tent, tabernacle. And it was set up in Shiloh after uh, uh, (coughs) Joshua came into the promised land and took it. And so the, the tabernacle is set up in Shiloh. That's the only place where you can go to have a sacrifice done. And uh, there's priests there. And we, we last week saw the priests at work in Shiloh as they're helping the people with their sacrifices. And they finally get it together. And then they're able to win the battle at hand. The tabernacle, of course, has its high priests, and those people came from uh, the tribe of uh, <clears throat> Levi. And the high priest, of course, started with Aaron, Moses' brother, and it would run down that family line. And it would always be somebody from the house of Aaron. Now, Aaron had several uh, sons. A couple of them were killed uh, because they carelessly served God in the temple. We read about uh, Nadab and Abihu who just did whatever they felt like and they got a little drunk and they mixed up the sacrifices and God said, nope, we're not going to have that. 
zap, and they died right there. And uh, so Aaron's family, you say, well, that's, a, that's quite a responsibility. Yeah, well, it's easy to go wrong, too. It's easy to go wrong. And so as Shiloh just comes into view at the end of Judges, uh, and there are people, they see we're getting it together. They realize we got to go to Shiloh so we can take care of God's business. All right, now we come to 1 Samuel. We're back in Shiloh. And so that's why I think Samuel is the author, and what he does is he leads us to Shiloh. He shows us what it was like when the people got themselves in the right place, took care of God's business and how they finally turned out okay in the end. And so now we're going to come, we're going to advance a few years. Nobody's quite sure how many years, uh, but we're going to come to another high priest now in the family line, and his name is Eli. Eli is now uh, probably the great-great-grandson of Aaron, the first high priest name is Eli, and he is in Shiloh there to oversee God's house in Shiloh. <clears throat> All right. And now we're going to start the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, but I'm starting in chapter 2. Because I want to know what it's like here. And what I put up on the top is when Shiloh goes bad. When Shiloh goes bad. What happens when Shiloh goes bad. And so, as we've seen, when we go to the house of God like we should, and we do what we're supposed to do, do it, do it God's way, they're successful. And that's how the book of Judges ends with that. It said there's no king, but when the people set their mind to serve God, it turned out good. Now we're in chapter 2. We're going to begin in chapter 2 of First Samuel, I'm looking at verse number 12. <clears throat> now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. That's an old-fashioned way of saying they were bad men. They were wicked men. It says they knew not the Lord. And so now there's two uh, younger priests in Shiloh. There's Eli's sons, and they don't know God. They say, well, how do they get to be priests? And not know God. Oh, I don't think that's any problems. Probably thousands of them <laughs> in the world today that serve as ministers that don't know God. Uh, I think that's not any particular issue, but it's particularly bad in this situation. That's why God said in the New Testament, He said the high priest line was always flawed. It was never right until Jesus Christ came. And the high priest's line was going to be in the house of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. And they never got it right till it got switched to the tribe of Judah. And Jesus Christ became the high priest. It was always a flawed thing. And one of the reasons it's flawed is because uh, your son was the next in line. What if he's no good? What if he's no good? And that's what we're going to run into right now. What happens when the God's house goes bad? What happens when things turn really bad in God's house? And Solomon 
uh, wrote in his book, uh, he says, I save all my life and I work and I build up a whole kingdom. And then he said, you might give it to your son. He might be an idiot. And his son was. It was true. He lived it. So he knew. All right. And so here's the warning, too, why God was never all about this. He wanted family to be counted as faithful people. Not bloodline. All right? Now get that in your head. So that the descendants of Abraham, he said, are not the Jews by bloodline, is faithful people. And he says, what happens, Jesus said, in the kingdom of heaven, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the leaders of the family of faith, will sit down and people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west and all join them at the table. So uh, the family of God has nothing to do with bloodline. So, <clears throat> but now here in the Old Testament, under a system that has its limitations, uh, we're going to see what happens when the sun... Shiloh turns bad. Chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, uh, verse number 12. Sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants came while the flesh was in a seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, stuck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh had brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. And so, if you were a Levite, or from the tribe of Levi, or a priest, all right, and uh, somebody is making a sacrifice. So they sacrifice the animal, and they do what's necessary. And then some of it, sometimes they get to take home and eat themselves. Not every offering was like that. But a lot of the offerings, God said, all right, you take this part of the offering and give it to me. Or basically the blood and the fat and the innards, uh, the guts of the animal, were all put on the altar and burned. Blood, fat, and guts. I was put on the altar and burned. And then you could take some home. And you say, well, why are they boiling it? Probably because it's hot and there's no refrigeration. So they cook it, boil it up, and then they can keep it that way and take it home. And so they make a sacrifice, they throw it in the pot, they're boiling it and getting it ready, they take it home and eat it. And the priest comes along, he's got a meat hook in his hand. And he reaches into your pot and he goes, and whatever he takes out is his. He can have it. And that was the rule. That's the way it was. And God set it up that way because the Levites were busy doing God's service and the rest of the 11 tribes were supposed to support the tribe of Levi. They're there serving you in the house of God, so we're going to support them. And so when they want their dinner, they reach in your pot with a meat hook and they grab it. Whatever they get, that's dinner. And that's the way it was worked and that's the way God intended to work. However, let's see what happens. Verse 15. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest servants came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he shall not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, he would answer, say, Nay, but you will give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by 
force. Ooh, wait a minute, something's wrong. Something's wrong. The sons of Eli said, we want meat. We don't want boiled meat. We want to put ours on a grill and eat it grilled. And so we will not take that old boiled stuff. We're boiling that pot. But we're just making a sacrifice now. That's right, you give me the raw meat. And so it says here that people would say, well, look, you know, you're welcome to some meat, but we know the way God expects it to be. We're going to take uh, the, the fat of the animal and we're going to put that on the altar. That's God's. Right? And he said, never mind God's or yours or anything. I'm taking that. You give it to me or I'll just take it. I'll just take it. Over in uh, uh, the uh, book of Le Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 7, you see how it was intended to work. Leviticus chapter 7. Verse number 30. Or 29, speak to the children of Israel, saying, He that offereth the sacrifice of his peace offerings unto the Lord shall bring his oblation of the Lord of the sacrifice of his peace offering. Now, this is a peace offering, a little different than a sin offering. Peace offering is what you gave to God in a way to say thank you. All right, so you, you want to thank God for a harvest. You want to thank God for your family, for a new child. Whatever your reason, you're thanking God. And you're going to make a sacrifice, and it's called the peace sacrifice. And so you come to God not to say, I'm sorry I sinned. That would be a different offering. But this is to say thank you. That's what it's for. Verse 30. His own hand shall bring the offerings of the Lord made by the fire, the fat with the breast. If he shall bring it, the breast may be waved for a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. And the right shoulder you shall give to the priest for a heave offering of the sacrifices for your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron that offereth blood of the peace offering, the fat shall have the right shoulder for his part. And for the wave breast and the heave shoulder, I have taken of the children of Israel from off the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them unto Aaron the priest and his sons by a statute forever from among the children of Israel. So you're making a peace offering, saying thank you to God, all right? And the priest comes along, and you first of all, you say, well, we're going to wave or heave this offering. So you can't pick up the whole animal and wave in the air. So you're going to have a wave offering. It's kind of going to determine how big it is. And so you're going to take a front shoulder. Those of you who have shot deer and so forth and done those things, you know that the front shoulder is not the best one. Right? But it's good. But it's not the best one. So you take a front shoulder and you wave it. You can wave it. Hold it up and wave it. Say, okay, the front shoulder goes to the priest. And then there's a breast, and I'm not sure what part that includes. But uh, however much that is, that also is cut off and waved in the air to God. We give it to God, and he wants it to go to the priest. So the priest had the ability to take your peace offering, the front shoulder, and a section of meat out of the breast, and that was theirs. It was always to be theirs. And so back here in Shiloh, we got a, 
a problem uh, with these fellas. They're just taking whatever they want. And back in chapter 2, so these guys have come in during your sacrifice. And they stole it from you. And they didn't take care to make sure that God's part, which was the fat of the animal in particular, the one they talk about the most, was burned on the altar. They just said, we want some nice fat on our meat when we grill it. Everybody likes a little bit of fat on their meat when they grill it, right? We want some fat on our meat, so don't be giving it to God. It's ours. And they forced him to do it. Now, he says over in 2 Samuel, back there, uh, in verse 17, Therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So, you go to the temple, and the question is for us to consider, first of all, did he just ruin your sacrifice? When he stole a piece of it, did he ruin your sacrifice? And the answer is no. If your heart is right between God, somebody else comes and st steals a hunk of your sacrifice, you're still okay. And that's what it's for. It's between you and God. Okay, so if the minister turns bad, you should be able to still worship. You can still worship. Right? So are there bad ministers? There's plenty of them. Okay, plenty of them. Uh, what do we do when, the, when Shiloh goes bad? What do you do when the minister goes bad? Well, you can still have your heart right with God. He's stealing your sacrifice. <laughs> Off from under your nose. But it says here in particular, men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Or that is, what happened was, uh, you don't feel like going and sacrificing. He's going to steal it. And he doesn't come up, and even when you're nice to him, and you say to him, hey, you're welcome to some of this. We just got to make sure that God's part goes to God. And he goes, yeah, I'm taking that right there. And he grabs it. Walks away with it. And pretty soon, you feel discouraged. You feel like going and sacrificing to God? No, you get discouraged. Discouragement is a real problem when Shiloh goes bad. When the ministers turn bad, you don't feel like participating. Why do you want to go participate? Well... You know, it's a very unpleasant experience at the house of God when the minister turns bad. And so, this is not going well. You say, this is certainly not going well at all. Well, let's see what happens next, all right? Down to verse number 22. Chapter 2 of 1 Samuel 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his son did unto all Israel how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So he is collecting both of these two boys, Hopney and Phineas as their names, and when people come to the church, 
or to the tabernacle to sacrifice and to say prayers, uh, they got a little thing going. Now, it doesn't say that they were forcible. I'm sure that uh, there was agreement on both sides. But when you turn the house of the Lord into uh, a place of prostitution, it's not a very pleasant thing. Now, how do you feel about going to church? Man, he steals your sacrifice and he'll steal your wife too. If he feels like it. And so there's a sexual thing going on with Eli's sons. So what do you think of that place? What do you think of that place? Let's see what happens. Verse 23, and he said to them, or Eli said to his sons, why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, it is, not, it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. If a man sinned against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not to the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. <laughs> so, they turned the house of God into a discouraging, miserable place where every bad thing is going on you can think of. And uh, Eli says... You boys, don't you know better than that? That's what he said. He didn't say anything else. He didn't throw them out on their ear. He didn't say, well, you know, you're never going to do that when I'm here. He said, come on, boys. Let's not, this is not good. You can't do that. And he left it at that. And so he so said they ignored their father. And what's God going to do? And God says, well, I'm going to get rid of them. I am not going to have it. So, verse 27, here's what happens. There came a man of God unto Eli. Who is he? Don't know. Where did he come from? Don't know. Where did he go afterwards? You don't know. All we know is that somewhere there was a man who believed in God. Nobody knows who he was. And God said to him, why don't you go on down and see that old Eli, priest down in Shiloh. I got a message for him. So you're going to be my messenger. This is the first, the second one in the whole book that's called a man of God. First one is Deborah. All right, she's called a woman of God. And now here's another one. We don't know who he is. All the way through the book of Judges, now this guy shows up. Meaning what? Because the church has gone bad and because the work of God has gone bad doesn't mean people still can't believe in God. And here's one that does. So he says, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear to the house of thy father when thou were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And he's talking about Aaron. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer on my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made of fire by the children of Israel? He said, I gave you offerings. People would serve you their meat. Right? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offerings, which I have commanded in my habitation? 
honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel and my people? He said, you're stealing the offerings. Therefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house, the house of thy father, should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You've messed around with God, and I'm not going to have it. I'm not going to put up with it. You're going to dishonor me, then it's going to come back on your head. Now, what he says here is kind of chilling. Behold, the days come, I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thy house. They shall see an enemy in my habitation is the wealth which God shall give Israel. There shall not be an old man in thine house forever. And the man of thine, whom I will not cut off from thine altar, shall be continue thine eyes, grieve thine heart. All the increase of thy house shall die in the flower of their age. This shall be a sign unto thee, that shall come unto thy two sons, and Hopni and Phineas. One day shall they die, both of them. There we go. God says, look, I'm not going to put up with you treating holy things and my things the way you treat them. I'm not going to have it. And so you're going to pay a price. And here's the price you're going to pay. You're an old man. Eli's getting to be near 100 years old. He's an old man. And you go back to Aaron, his great-great-grandfather. He lived to be a very old man. Moses would be a great-great-uncle. Lived to be 120 and we keep following that bloodline, and they keep living to be 90 and 100, 90 and 100. And then, and then Eli lives to be almost 100, and God says, that's it. The rest of you are all going to die young for the rest of your days. You will die in the prime of your life. Wow. That was pretty costly, that meat they stole. Huh? And he said, by the way, your two sons that are stealing the meat and having sex right there in the, in the tabernacle, uh, they're both going to die in one day. And then the fella walks away. Whew. Now what? What do we do now? What are we going to do? If you're going to dishonor God, God's not going to have it. People think they're getting away with it. They're not getting away with anything. First Peter, over First Peter chapter 4, is one of the statements that's kind of an uh, interesting, shocking sort of statement that Peter makes. It's about the same topic that we're talking about here. First Peter 4, verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? So, Peter says, here's the way God looks at it. We're going to clean up the mess. We're going to start in church. We're going to start in the house of God. We're not going to have those things in the house of God. Well, do we see those things still? Well, yeah. 
You can ask the Catholic priests, they know about it. Right? There's an awful lot of that kind of stuff going on, and God's not going to put up with it. He is not going to have it. He says, if you're going to dishonor me, then I am, we're not going to do this. So you're going to start in the house of God. And that's important for us because I've seen people, let's pray for revival in the world. Oh, let's pray for revival here first. That's where we're going to start in the house of God. I ask God to get inside of us and get right with God, and then we'll be all right. We go in the right direction, all right? And so when Eli gets the warning, your sons are going to die, he should grab them by the throat, say, you're out of here. We're going to clean this place up. But he doesn't. He just lets them go, and they ignore him. And so there's got to come a, a day when the price is, has to be paid. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. In verse number 2, the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. When they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew the army in the field about 4,000 men. And we usually see numbers a lot higher than that in a battle. So the Philistines come, and they're going to fight against Israel. And uh, they kill 4,000 men in the field. Now, that's a big loss. Uh, but not like the ones we read about, there were 20,000 in the book of Judges. But it's still a loss. So verse 3, when the people were come to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And so, Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, these two sons, say, you know, yeah, we'll go get the Ark. We got beat. And we know the history of Israel, that every time Joshua took the Ark into battle, he won. Joshua marched around the walls of Jericho with the ark, and on the seventh day, the entire city collapsed. So uh, that's all we need. Go get the ark. And Hopney and Phineas, yeah, we got, we'll go get it for you. We'll bring it over. Well, they bring it over, and now they're going to take it into battle. Verse 5, when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. All right, there's what we need. We're going to win. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come to the camp. They said, Woe be unto us, for it has not been such a thing heretofore. They never brought that ark around before when we were fighting with them. We fought with Samson and everybody else. Never had that problem. Now they've gone and got God on their side. What's going to happen to us? Woe be unto us. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants to the Hebrew as they have been to you. 
<laughs> Quit yourself like men and fight or get you up and let's go. Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. And, then, and they fled every man to his tent. There was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. Now that 4,000 doesn't look like much. This time they lost 30,000. The ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. How are we doing now down at church? How's things going down in Shiloh? Well, those two fellows that were stealing the sacrifices and having sex with the ladies in, the, in church right there, uh, they're dead. God said he was going to see to it that they both died in one day. Now they're dead. Right? You mock God. You say, I don't have to give God what he wants. You give me that fat. I want fat on my meat. Don't be wasting that with God. He said they didn't know God. They sure didn't. They sure didn't. Uh, they sure didn't. And so, now what? Now what? They're dead. That's the two priests. And the Ark of the Covenant has been seized by the Philistines. Well, you got yourself a mess now, huh? Now what? What do you do now? You have abandoned God, and things are really a mess. And so the very beating heart of your worship center is the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. It's supposed to remain there. They've taken it out, carried it away, and lost it, and the Philistines got it in battle. So they now hold it, also thinking that their God whose name is Dagon, who is fish from the top of his head down to here, and man below the waist, or in other words, a fish walking around on two legs, that's who Dagon was, made up to be the fish god. Uh, their god won, and they got the Ark of the Covenant. We showed them. So, let's go down and see what happens here. Uh, Verse 15, Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were dim and he could not see. The man said unto Eli, I'm he that come out of the army. I fled the day of the army. He said, what is there done, my son? Messenger answered, said, Israel fled before the Philistines. There's been a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God is taken. It came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God. Notice this doesn't say made mention of his two sons. All right. When he made mention of the ark of God, he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck break and he died for he's an old man and heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. Fell over backwards and broke his neck. Died. Wow. That kind of wiped out that whole family pretty quickly, didn't it? All right. Just in one day, Eli and both of his sons died. And now the ark is in the hands of, of uh, the Philistines. So what are we going to do? Judgment has to begin at the house of God. So you say, well, where? Here's what happens when the priest or when the ministers or when God's people go bad 
It certainly sends out a message, doesn't it? it certainly sends out a message that, uh, well, that God couldn't have been much. That God they serve didn't amount to much. Look at them. They're dead. And they're very prized peace. The Ark of the Covenant is in the hands of the Philistines. So now what? Well, God is capable of taking care of business. And that's the thing we need to hear today. God's quite capable of taking care of business. He knows what to do and how to get things done. And so we say, well, what's the worst thing? Well, which is worse? The ark being gone? Or the people being dead? I understand something about the ark. When they carried it around Jericho until the walls fall, was that because of the ark? I'll give you a hint. No. Not because of the ark. It's because their hearts. Joshua and those people said, we're going to do what God wants us to do. God said, march around the city. Okay, we'll do it. Didn't say attack the city. March around it. Okay, we march around the city. What do we do next? March around the city. March around. What do we do next? Third day, march the fourth day, march on fifth day, march six days, march around the city. Nothing going on here, God. What do we do next? March around the city, seventh day. Matter of fact, today, seventh day, seven times. They marched around the city seven times, do it exactly as they were instructed by God to do. And when they did exactly what he, he was instructed them to do, march around the city, the walls fall. Not because they got the Ark of the Covenant, but because they obeyed. Now these guys thought, all we need to do is take the Ark. We'll be all set. No, no. Nobody's covered by something that they do that way. All right, they understand that. You can say, well, I'm going to go to church and I'll be all set. No, you won't. Not if your heart isn't right with God. You will not be all set by going to church. That won't do it. People say, well, I can take communion. I can go take communion. You can take communion a thousand times. If your heart's not right with God, that's not what it's about. It's you and God right. And there is no service and there is no religious action that will make it right. It's got to be between your heart and God. That's what makes it right. So you can't say, I got the Ark of the Covenant. I, I can steal the meat and I can have sex with the women. I'll just take the Ark with me and I'll be all set. No, you won't be all set. They're dead now. They're dead, and their father lies over, fell over backwards, dead, and the Ark of the Covenant is seized because it is never the Ark of the Covenant, it is never the service, it's the relationship between us and God that has to be right. And you can have all the Ark of the Covenant, you can have a hundred of them carrying them around, so what? If you're not right with God, it won't help you. So, now the Ark is gone, it's over in the Philistines camp. Now, let's see how God takes care of business. I love these things. They're wonderful. This is, God says, 
We'll show you. Let me show you what I'm going to do. Chapter 5, 1 Samuel. Well, we've seen the house of the Lord go bad. We've seen the sacrifice of God despised. We've seen the people of God discouraged by the leadership. Leadership discouraged the people. And they didn't really want to participate anymore in God's services. And who can blame them? Who can blame them? So now... Things are bad. God's stepped in. Those men are dead. Now what about the ark? Chapter 5. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it to the house of Dagon. There's their fish god. They got a big old idol standing there, a big tall one. Set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early in the morning, behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. <laughs> So they got, I'm sure he's a big old thing. They set the ark, which is a little box, down there. And there you go, Dagon, there's our sacrifice. They come in the morning, Dagon's laying on his face. Well, what would you do when your god falls over? Stand him up again. <laughs> so they did. They, they decided to stand him up again. <laughs> they took Dagon, set him in his place again. Verse 4, they rose early on the morrow morning. Behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms <laughs> of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. And neither the priests of Dagon nor any come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on them of Ashdod and he destroyed them, smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. Or he gave them tumors. So you got the Ark of the Covenant. First of all, we'll fix your little god Dagon there. Now his head's broken off and it rolled all the way to the door. And his hands are gone. So what good is a God with no head and no hands? Well, he's just good as he was before because he was no good before. All right? It's just his head is by the door. And can you imagine these Philistines, what kind of people they are? Dagon's holy head rolled to the door. So now when we come to the doorway, we always step over the door. Because we don't want to step where Dagon's head was. <laughs> What's wrong with people? What's wrong with people that they can't see that a head that broke off and rolled in a door is nothing good about it? Well, they're going to honor the doorway now because that kept Dagon's head in place. Dagon's got no head. He's nothing. The Ark of the Covenant is God's taking care of it. So they say, well, our poor old Dagon, we can make another one. Now, how about this? Now they got tumors. They start to grow tumors all over. So they said, get this thing out of here. Take it to the next city. Take it over to Gaza. Take it to the next city. Everywhere they go, people are covered with tumors. They got tumors everywhere. Everywhere they go. So finally they say, tell us what to do. Get rid of this thing. It's destroying us. And not only did they get tumors, but they died. They died. So whether it was a cancerous thing or what, it doesn't tell us. Just said that they, wherever that ark went, uh, they had tumors everywhere. And they said, you getting a little uncomfortable feeling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty uncomfortable. 
All right, get rid of this thing. And so they said, well, here's what you do. You take two milk cows, because we're going to prove that Dagon really is in charge and that this is just an accident. So we're going to take two milk cows that have never been on a harness or anything, and we're going to take their calves away from them and tie up their calves in a pen. All right. And then we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant and put it on a cart and tie these two milk cows to the cart. Now if these milk cows go down that road when the calves are over here, any of you have been around cows and calves, you know they don't separate them. That's not what they want. They won't separate. All right. So he said, we're going to take milk cows, we're going to keep the calves in the pen, and we're going to say, them cows are going to have to go down that road all the way to Beth Shemesh, which is in Israel. So it's quite a long way. We want them to go all that way, and if they go that way, then we'll know it was God. If they don't go that way, we'll know it was just an accident. And all these tumors all over us and Dagon's head on the floor, just an accident. So what do you say? Let's do it that way. Okay, that'll prove that they got something. So they hook the two milk cows up, tie up the calves, and you know what calves do when they're tied up? <laughs> All right. And then two milk cows just took right off. They went right down that road all the way to Israel. Just walked away. God says, well, how you doing now with your tumors? Feeling good about it? See, God can take care of his business. And you say, well, it's the Ark of the Covenant. They sent it home. They didn't want it. Because if you're against God, there's no thing that God has that's going to help you. You say, well, we got something that belongs to God. No, you don't. Not if you don't capture his heart with yours, and you got nothing. And so that <laughs> it says that the hand of God was heavy on them because they were dying from these tumors. And they were glad to get rid of them, so he said, we'll make an offering to God. We'll make little golden tumors. And they made five little golden tumors and put them on the cart and little golden rats and put them on the cart and sent them off to Israel. And the Israelites, look, it's the Ark of the Covenant. So they sacrificed two cows, used the cart to build a fire, and they have a sacrifice to God. It's finally home. Who got it home? God got it home. They didn't get it home. Nobody even tried to go get it. God brought it home. He's quite capable of taking care of his own business. You say, well, if it's just an ark and it's not really, well, God is going to show you that he is going to handle the mess that's made. Now, better than that, and that's kind of a fun story, right? Better than that, we go back to chapter 1 now. There's something better than that going on. There's a man and his wife, and they go to Shiloh. And they're going to offer a sacrifice to God. They go every year to make a sacrifice. She has no children. 
Her name is Hannah. Verse 9 of chapter 1. Hannah rose up after they had gotten into Shiloh and after they had drunk. Eli the priest sat on a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. She was in bitterness of soul, prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. She vowed a vow and said, Lo, Lord of hosts, if thou indeed will look on the affliction of thine handmaid, remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child. And I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. There shall come no razor upon his head. Now you know what that means. Because we did Samson, right? It means he's a Nazarite. He's given to God. Came to pass as she continued praying, therefore the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she'd been drunken. Eli said to her, How long will thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaiden for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken thereunto. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace. God of Israel, grant thee thy position as thou hast asked him. So here comes a lady who is really serious with God. And you say, what's God going to do when Shiloh goes bad? When the men in charge of his house fail miserably, turn against God, what's God going to do? Well, he's going to raise up somebody new. All right, verse 20. It came to pass the time was after Hannah conceived, she bare a son, called his name Samuel, because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice for his vow. Hannah went not up, but said to her husband, I will not grow up until the child be weaned, then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. And so the little boy is born, the time comes. And they come back to Shiloh, verse 25. They slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. She said, O oh my Lord, as I so live with my Lord, I am that woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him unto the Lord. As long as he liveth, he should be lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, I just am stunned at this. I don't know what to say about it. Eli is raising two sons of his own, and they are bad boys. And he doesn't correct them. He lets them go, do whatever they want. And now there's a boy. He's just a little boy. I don't know. He's not very old. Five or six, maybe. Just a little boy. And she brings him and gives him to Eli. Would you give your boy to Eli? Wow. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know. But she said, I'm giving him to God, and he's going to be lent to the Lord. He's already under the vow of a Nazarite. So I'm giving him to God. I didn't really give him to Eli. He's the caretaker, but I gave him to God. And so 
Well, all this stuff is going on. Well, they're stealing the sacrifices and, for heaven's sakes, having sex with the women in the church. There's a little boy in the back. That's God's answer. How many times did that happen? Right? Samson, a little baby born, that's God's answer. John the Baptist, a little baby born, that's God's answer. Jesus Christ, a little baby born, and that's the ultimate answer. And now little Samuel here is turned over to God, and that's God's answer. What's he going to do with the mess? He's got somebody else. He's not part of this family. That's my boy. I'm taking him. And so uh, we have the wonderful story in chapter 3. So simultaneously, well, the house of God is getting worse and worse and worse, and people are more and more and more and more discouraged. Right at the same time, there's a little boy. A little boy. There's a lot of hope. And children, I'll tell you, a lot of hope in children. I look at them and I have such hopes. A lot of hopes in children. And so, we know the story. Chapter 3, verse 4. The Lord called Samuel and he answered, Here am I. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for thou callest me. He said, I called not. Lie down again. He went lie down. The Lord called yet again Samuel. Samuel arose, went to Eli, said, Here I am. Thou didst call me. He said, I called not. My son, lie down again. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel the third time. He rose and went to Eli, said, Here I am, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord called the child. For Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. Shall be if he call thee, thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And Samuel went, lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called his other time, Samuel, Samuel, this is a boy. This is a boy. And Samuel went, lay down in his place. Lord came, called Samuel, then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. There you go. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel which both the ears of everyone to hear shall tingle. That day I will perform against Eli all things I have spoken concerning his house, which when I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. So, Next day, Eli said, hey, what? You get, did he call you again? Yeah. What did he say? Well, tell me what he said. He said, you didn't discipline your sons. And they just did whatever they wanted. And so he said, he's going to destroy your whole house. Imagine a 90-year-old man being told that by a six or seven year old boy. Wow. And Eli says it's okay. He says that's the way it is. 
He told him everywhere at verse 18, hid nothing from him. He said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. So everything Samuel said, verse 20, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. He's a young man, growing up to be a teenager, and everybody said, he's the man. There's the new guy. Not these guys stealing meat and doing what they're doing in the temple. That kid there, the word of chapter 4, the word of the Lord of Samuel came to all Israel. And he's the one that set. He's the voice now they listen to. So in this strange horrible decay in the church God has already planted the seed that will set it right and he took care of his ark he had a way of doing that and the seed is planted to set it right and it grows right in the same building where they're stealing and fornicating right in that same building there's a little boy God said that's my future. Though those little kids over next door, that's our future. That's God. That's God. That's God preparing us for the future. God planted those seeds. They're wonderful little seeds. That's a very exciting thing over there. More exciting than here. Over there is exciting. The possibilities are amazing as God's going to pick. There's one I got, I'm going to pick one. I'm going to have these people to serve me. And so we think sometimes that all is lost. Eli fell over and broke his neck. He's dead. His two sons are killed in battle. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. How bad can it get? Well... Let me ask you today, how bad can it get? You think God's out of control? I don't think so. I think he's perfectly capable of defending his name, defending his honor, and raising up people right in front of our noses, if you will, who are going to do the will of God and take care of God's business. And so when things got so bad in Shiloh that you're embarrassed to go there, you don't even want to attend a service there, who knows, but God's got a little boy waking up in the night hearing God's voice. Isn't that a wonderful thing? How, how amazing it is that God had it under control. And he will become one of the great leaders of the nation of Israel. Not because he's a priest. Not because he's a king. Because he's a man of God. That's it. I gotta stop. Because you could go a long time on this. This is a wonderful story. We'll continue more in some of the interesting things about this guy named Samuel next week. Thank you.